Welcome to the California Curio Collecting Patriots podcast. My name is Sean, and with me today is my co-host. My name is Jake. Today, we'll be getting back to the topic of Curio and Relics and discuss the best ways to get started with collecting. Now, a lot of people would just think, oh, just go buy an old gun and now you're going to be a collector. And that's a valid thing you can do. But we're going to be talking more about a specific type of collecting and collections. So, Jake, where would you start when it comes to collecting? Well, see, that's an interesting question. There's many different angles you can approach collecting. Me personally, I had to sit down because I, I realized this was going to be an investment. And I wanted to sit down and, you know, I, I didn't want to just collect. I wanted to collect what interested me. So I had to sit down and went, okay, if I walk into a gun store and they show me a gun and say, look, here is, for instance, an AR-15. It was owned by, you know, let's let's say Barack Obama. <laughs> I would immediately buy that gun. <laughs> One, because the previous owner was Barack Obama. And that would just be the most hilarious story you could probably ever tell. Oh, yes. So when I got started, this is the best way I could put this out to y'all out there trying to figure out whether you want to or if you already know you want to, and you're trying to figure out the approach angle here, what interests you the most? Is it, do you want to just collect guns that might be hard to get? Do you want to collect guns that can possibly go up in value over time? Do you want to collect guns that have significant history behind them? Do you want to collect guns that were part of significant roles and maybe didn't play a significant part in history? You know, like saying, you know, you want to collect the sniper rifle used by a Russian female sniper that killed, you know, 53 Nazis and you're looking for that specific rifle. Or are you okay with just collecting a random Russian rifle and saying, hey, check it out. It's from that date and that period. It may have served. <laughs> There's many different ways to approach this. Uh I personally went for history and the story behind the weapon. I have a friend of mine who went for collectability and value. All of his were investments, which he later used and sold them to other people later on at quite the markup due to the fact that they had become very rare and hard to find. And he was able to invest in a company. And that investment took him a long ways. So to answer the question, it would be just what would interest you the most? That is true. And to go on that, there are people who will say, and I've seen collections of various kinds. There's been people who they've said, oh, I want like every model of Walther handgun from the PO one on. And that's, that's great. Go collect those. If that's what you want. 
likewise, there are people who they've just said, oh, yeah, I want to collect firearms from this one specific period in time. Rather, it was military use, civilian use, or anything. I just want from this time period. And again, if that's what interests you, go collect. But the first thing you have to do is you have to decide, like Jake said, what will interest you and what are you looking for when it comes to collecting? You know, it it reminds me of classic cars. A lot of guys, they're real into certain types of classic cars, and not all cars are for everyone. You got the crowd that collects the uh, the muscle cars. You got those that collect uh, yesteryear exotics like Ferraris and Lamborghinis from the 70s and 80s. And then you got these newer collectors that are collecting these, you know, modern-day supercars or hypercars. Then you got those guys that collect lowriders, some that collect, you know, the old highway queens, like, you know, that old, like, say, an old Buick Skylark. You got some guys that are into wagons and some that are into hot hatches. There's an for every seat. And it's the same thing with the firearm world. The only difficulty is finding out which seat you want to sit in and which one you're most comfortable in. Exactly. Now, I, for one, wanted to collect guns with historical reference. Uh, Guns that have served in wars, that have been proven, and have fought the fight. Doesn't matter on what side. I wanted something that can remember these moments in history that aren't taught very well in schools these days. And with this firearm, every time I meet someone, they, they sometimes they're amazed I have one to begin with. Then I get to tell them the really cool story of how I obtained it and what happened to it, where it came from, what its lineage is, how many people have owned it, how they got it, you know. It's, it's something that I think is really fun because I'm one who loves history. And like I said, I have a friend who collected simply because he knew that these weapons would be valuable one day in certain aspects. And that's what he did. He waited until he found very valuable, high commodity firearms and bought them at the first opportunity he had when they were at their lowest price. And he sat on them for several years until they were worth, well, quite a bit more. And then he was able to sell them at a markup and take that money and invest it. You know, it's just like silver or gold. It's just a different market. Well, that is true. So say you're happy with the idea of, you know, I want to collect curio and relics that have historical figures behind them. Maybe I want to purchase a rifle used by Robert E. Lee during the Civil War. Maybe I want an old musket that could have been used in one of George Washington's battalions during the founding of this country. Maybe you want something that was served in Vietnam. Maybe you want something from World War II or World War I. The options, sadly, are endless for what you can get. And I say sadly because some wars should never have happened. You know, some people would like to collect firearms that are part of his history. That's, that's you know, like I said, I'm into. Uh, I've got guns from every war except for one. And I'm still trying to fill that gap, but we'll see what happens. Now, Sean, for someone who's sat there and decided, hey, I know what I want to collect, 
Well, how do I collect them? Now, we've already taught you in episode one uh, sort of the process behind getting a Type 3 FFL and a COE. We gave you a brief run through. Now, say you have your FFL and your COE and you've decided that you want to collect, we'll just throw it out there, guns from various wars. How do you know which gun stores you can go to and which ones you can't? Which ones will cater to you and your desires and needs versus those who will just kick you out of the store because they don't have anything old? Yes, when it comes to trying to pick a gun store, uh, the first thing I'll say is this. If it has the word tactical in the name, odds are they're not going to have anything old. No, they might... (laughs) Yeah, they, they might have like a couple old guns in the back, maybe. But it would be, you would probably have better odds playing the lottery. Let's just put it that way. So, out here where I'm at, we had a store called Gunfighter Tactical. It was a great little store, man. The guy, the guy had a cool dog. You go in there and Dog walks up and greets you, you know, and you walk in and the walls are just covered with the tactical components any modern AR owner can possibly want. I walked in there and there wasn't a single gun that I was willing to buy off of his shelves. <laughs> However, he, for some reason, had ammunition for my guns. And I bought out about half of his stock because no one else was going to. So I got kind of lucky with that. But the best way to figure out what gun stores are going to cater to you is do a little bit of research. Get out there. You know, you're going to have to go to these gun stores. You don't call them. You call them, you're just wasting their time and yours. You're pulling them away from customers. It's unfortunate they're, they're not going to be able to answer half of the questions you're going to have over the phone. Because you can, you can call them all day and go, hey, you got anything 50 years or older? And they're just going to tell you no. Because they don't know off the top of their head. And it's just easier to say no and get that phone call over with so they can get back to a customer on the sales floor that may actually want to buy a firearm right then and there. So my suggestion to you would be to go to these gun stores, go to each and every one, walk in, take a look around, you know, greet them, say hi, you know, just looking and take a look around at what they got. You'd be surprised. There's a gun store down the street from where I live, where I picked up one of my favorite uh, curio and relic firearms before I even had the licensing for it. And I later would suggest Sean to this location where he would pick up a Curio and Relic firearm. But when you walk in there, the first thing you see is all these tactical firearms up on the walls. And everything's real modern in there. It kind of looks like a like an Apple store. <laughs> oh my god, it does. Yeah. It, 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 <laughs> you, walk, you, you walk in there. And it looks kind of like an Apple store. And you're like, oh, there's nothing for me in here. I don't smell Cosmoline at all. And then <laughs> before you realize it, there's a whole rack 
behind the counter of just old firearms that people are trying to sell. And they just happen to bring them to that location. You never know where they're going to end up. So when it comes to, you know, learning what stores to go to, there are some where out here where I'm at, I'm going to do a shout out to find firearms in La Mesa. They are fantastic. Their customer service is through the roof. They specialize in all sorts of firearms, but usually finer firearms, ones you can't get so easily. Firearms that have history behind them. Firearms that are well, exactly what fit my, my build for what I'd like to collect. That doesn't mean they don't collect newer firearms or have ammunition for them or sell them. They are a store that features just a lot of antique firearms. First is another one called the Glock Store, which is exactly what it says. It is the Glock Store. And wouldn't you know it, all they sell is Glocks. That was like walking into a Lego store. And you just get to walk by and you can almost build your own clock right there on the sales floor and tell them, I want this one. <laughs> it was actually a really cool business concept, to be honest. I, I do kind of make fun of it a little bit because it too was like walking. That was more like walking into a footlocker. <laughs> <laughs> Real clean. Everything's bright white, you know, and they, they want you to feel like you're in a very high end place. But you go into places like Fine Firearms in La Mesa. You walk in, you see brick walls and just wood galore on that on that wall. Rack after rack of just maybe plastic and wood. You know? And you, you walk in, you can smell that there's been firearms to this place. And generations of them. And it's... You can sort of see the history in it. Versus walking into, say, the gun range, a store out where I'm at. And they may have a Curio and Relic. That's where I bought my P64. Baffled me. Because everything, they had those Chiapa Rhinos. They were the only place that had them for the longest time out here. People were buying them up like crazy. Hmm. So you're going to want to go to these gun stores and research your prices. Uh, you you got to have an idea of what you want to get. Now, here's the problem with Curio collecting. You're going to find firearms that you have no idea what in the world it is. You're going to walk into a store you're going to see something made of wood and steel, and you're going to think, I need that. You might not. You see, there's a lot of people out there who don't understand the difference in variations of firearms. Uh, knowing the history of when they were made, when they were you know, put through you know, services, and the biggest thing, markings. Of all types, from painted stripes to stamped in, you know, caricatures or letters or symbols. It is a huge 
benefit to know what to look for when you're looking for a rifle. One of the biggest pet peeves I have is with Reddit and this community they have for these Mosin Nagat fanboys. Now, I know I reference them a lot in the podcast because it's an easy target. Uh, it's, it's essentially the beginner collector's gun. <laughs> Anyone who wants to do curio collecting, they're going to want to start with a Mosin because they were dirt cheap for the longest time. They were a dime a dozen, and everyone had a dozen. Nowadays, it's not so much. Now, there, I, I will say they're probably still the easiest to f- reliably find, though. But at what cost? True. Now, in doing this, you're gonna want to. You're gonna be wanting to look for a most. And I bring up this Reddit community because every time one of these little clowns gets a hold of one, they take a bunch of pictures of it, post it to Reddit, and go, "What did I get, guys?" Like he just op- like he's a five year old who just opened a Pokemon card deck and hasn't the slightest clue as to what he's looking at. How'd I do, guys? Like, what? Are- why? Why are you? Why do you? Every time they do this, I love to tell them outlandish, ridiculous things to throw them off. And of course, there's the fanboys that get all high and mighty because they all like to, you know, jerk each other off on that site. And make each other feel like they've collected solid gold when what they've collected is generic crap. Leftovers of a bygone era. Now, this is coming from a guy who owns three Mosins. <laughs> All three are different. And it's because I knew what I was looking for. You know, these guys will go grab what what ends up being a round receiver and they think they got the hidden gem and they act like it because it has all these stampings on it. Now, the first one I bought was a gift from a friend of mine. He gave me the opportunity to get into this collecting and all this. And he said, here, I'll sell you one of my guns for cheap to get you started. He sold me a 9130 Mosin Nagant from 1943. It's an Ichivek rifle. It has no significant history whatsoever. He bought it because it was the one of the best looking stock out of the whole grip of them that when he was in the store. And it still looks fantastic to this day. But that doesn't mean it's worth much. Now, in my learning about this rifle, I stopped and went, hey, look at all these markings. And he goes, oh, yeah, you can decipher them and figure out what they all mean. And I go, oh, cool. And I learned what proofing stamps were. I learned what testing stamps were. I learned what factory stamps were. Obviously, where the serial numbers are. Importation stamping. Or etching. Some are ruined. You know, and there's, there's a lot to it. You, you want to you look at it and go, okay, well, mine has this symbol. That symbol means it was made in this factory at this time. And then it has this symbol next to it, which means it was refurbished at this factory after the war. And then it ended up in my hands. Which can be a very fun thing to do, if that's what you want to do. 
But for the love of God, don't go pick one up and call Reddit and go, what did I do, guys? <laughs> did I find the golden egg? It just drives me insane. I, I ended up leaving that community because these kids were just driving me nuts. <laughs> it's like, God, you found a Mosin with an Archangel stock. Just go to bed. <laughs> like, just go to bed. <laughs> it's not special, I swear. <laughs> now, for those wondering, yes, I do own the three. Uh, the one is uh, was a gift from a friend of mine who sold it to me for a very low price, and I don't plan on ever selling that because that's a friend gun. If I ever got into hard times, he agreed he would buy it back from me at the same exact price he bought it for, which would be a steal. At this point, because <laughs> I bought it from him for 200 and he'd pay me 200 for it when I could probably turn on a sell it for four. Easily. But, yeah. <laughs> but that's the friendship deal. You know, you work these deals with your friends and, you know, that's, that's the way things work. Another one I found was completely by mistake. It happened to be an M44. An actual Russian M44. And... I couldn't say no to it because it was a shorter Mosin with a bayonet attached to it. And I went, hey, that's pretty cool. I want that in my collection. That looks like it's a lot more manageable than this four-foot-long gun. And so I bought that. Then I later would come across, I think, probably the last one that's ever going to come across this country's floors. Uh, <laughs> the local gun store that I was you know, friends with and patronizing had come across a crate of Mosin Nagants. And it, they did, they said this will probably be the last time we'll ever see this happen, where they literally bring a crate out, open it up on the sales floor, and you get to just reach in and grab yours. And when these crates came in, these guys went through them with a fine-tooth comb, they said. Oh, they're all just a bunch of, you know, Round receivers. There's nothing special in these. And I sat there. I looked at him and said, well, do you mind if I take a look? Now, keep in mind when you. There are certain issues with a Mosin when you're going to purchase one. They're usually soaked in Cosmoline. Yeah. And that is a nasty substance. It stinks. It great for your hair, though. Uh <laughs> Good styling gel. I'm just going to leave that there. There's a reason why the Russians' hair were always standing up in the front, you know? The Ivan Drago look. It was Cosmoline. Anyway, you know, maybe it's Cosmoline. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I go through this thing, and there's tons of them. I'm just sorting through them, and I reach down to the bottom, and I'm, I'm grabbing them and twisting them over. Some of them are upside down for whatever reason. I'm, I'm believing the Russians just couldn't have cared. I flip one over and I see it's a hex receiver. And I'm going, ooh, that's kind of cool. You don't see those too often in these crates nowadays. Let's see what year it was made. And I start rubbing off some of the Cosmoline and see it was made in uh, uh, 1929. Was it 1929? 19, I thought it was 1928. 
1928. Yeah, it's 1928, which would make it an Extragoon Army rifle. It barely falls under the classification of an Extragoon. And uh, I, I reached in there, and I saw the year, and I went, Kachow. I ripped this thing out past several other Mosins, making a huge mess in the crate. <laughs> didn't care about the stock, just ripped this thing out, handed it to the guy behind the counter, like Kratos in God of War. Like, I just saw, <laughs> you know, reached in there, grabbed it, ripped it out, and then handed it to the guy, and he's just like, what the hell? And I'm like, this one. The guy looks at it, and I see, there's another dude in the store. He was a Russian fanboy. He loved anything Russian. Okay, he loved the way Russian firearms acted, the way they worked. He loved them for their flaws. He just really liked Russian firearms, and he had several variations of many guns. Now he wasn't just a Mosin fanboy; he just loved Russian firearms. He saw me hand this thing to this guy very aggressively, and he saw from across the store the hex receiver on it, and I heard him go. What? <laughs> and this guy comes darting up. <laughs> he goes, Was that in that crate? And I'm like, Yes, it was. He grabs it and looks at the year and goes, You son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> He'd been looking for an extra goon rifle for a long time. And this is, keep in mind, this is an employee of the store. This guy had the pick of the litter when they go in the back. Okay. And he missed it because he got lazy and didn't check every gun. And I found it. And uh, naturally, the first thing I do is I went on to Reddit and said, look what I got, you sons of bitches. You don't have one. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't actually do that. I still want to, though. But I, I've yet to do that because I am a gentleman and I have uh, class and sophistication. But knowing what to look for was the key in that whole situation. I knew what year span that I was looking for. I knew what kind of receiver it had. And I, I knew exactly what I wanted. And I happened to find it. I got lucky. Because I have not seen one since. Now, in my searches for things, I usually keep a list at home of the firearms that I'm looking for, because I go and do my research on what I'd like to get next. Uh, I happened to be in a gun store one day and there was a, a Lee Enfield. And I went, Oh, I don't have one of those. And that's on my list. Well, I might, I might as well just pick that up while I'm here. It's a 1914. And I stopped and looked at it. And went, that's a 1914 that served in, in world war one. So when you go into these stores, you got to research the prices and know what you're going to be paying. Right now, Russian, Russian guns in general, their guns, their ammo, it's at an all-time high because the Biden administration has put restrictions on importation. And, you know, that's rightly so. Um, I don't disagree with that. To you, Sean? At this moment in time, no. Now, it's, it's not because it's slightly making us somewhat richer. It's the fact that we do support 
anything that we can to help, you know, foreign countries in need. We are the United States. We are very fortunate to have what we have because we fought the wars that we fought and we fought them hard and we won. This country was built on the blood of those who came before and fought for the freedoms that we enjoy today. And it's very sad to see that some of these freedoms are being taken away that simply. Now, I do support helping the Ukraine, but I think there's bigger issues uh, besides the Ukraine that we sadly don't ever touch upon. But I'm going to leave that for another day. Now, this embargo on trade with Russia, I do support it, even though it does make it very difficult for me to find ammunition for most of my firearms. Because a lot of my firearms, I would buy Russian ammunition for them because it's cheap. And that's and I'm not just talking about the Mosins. I'm talking about my Mauser ammunition. I would get it from a Russian supplier. Uh, I was getting uh, 30-30 from a Russian source because they're made cheaply. And they do tend to run a little hotter. And they're usually steel core, just crap. You can't shoot at ranges but it's perfect for going out to the desert where I go to shoot. Uh, unfortunately, it's made it very difficult for me to collect some of my ammo. So uh, that there is that. And you got to take that into account when you're looking to join, you know, collecting uh, just the ammunition, the, the price of the initial rifle. And if it may need to be repaired, as me and Sean have joked, there's going to be an upcoming episode about a firearm that I purchased for $100. <laughs> it needed a lot of repairs. And that was something that I realized needed to happen when I bought it. I know I, I made it sound like a spur-of-the-moment purchase, and it really was. I never intended to buy that thing when I went in there because I didn't know it was there. I didn't even know what it was until I was out of the store with it. It took me four days to figure out what that rifle was because it was just so odd. You got to know what you're going in there. To, you, I mean, you can go in there and just grab things off a shelf and hope for the best. But that's no guarantee you're going to get anything rare, cool, or amazing or valuable. But if it's what's available and you do want it, that's the beauty of the FFL. You can get it that day. And you get to take it home that night, do your research on it, see what it is. You know, unfortunately, you're not going to be able to know every marking for every gun when you walk into these stores. But having a general idea between a Tula and an Ichivik for a Mosin, you, you want to know that the one you actually really want to look for is the Tula. The build quality looks really good. They're a little higher sought after. They're a little harder to find because they've been collected through and through. I don't think there's any new Tulas coming in in general. Even if we were to open up trade with Russia again, I <laughs> doubt you'll find a Tula coming in. I um, doubt it. Exactly. So knowing the difference between that, knowing the difference between a German K98 Mauser and a Nazi K98 Mauser, there's actually a difference. Knowing that can save you thousands. I mean, thousands 
someone will say, oh, but it's a Mosin. I want 600 for it. It's a 1943 Ichivec. It's never been in service. It sat in a closet until the war was over because it never got issued. Because most of Russia was wiped out at that point in World War II. They were exhausted and were just depleted. So to sit there and say, hey, they want 600 for this. When you see someone selling a Tula for the same price, you kind of want to go for the Tula. You got to know the difference. Just like with mine and Sean's K98s. I went and got one because it had the better finish and it was a little better quality, had stood the test of time a little better and had been well better taken care of. Though it was not an SS contract, it wasn't even a Nazi K98. It was 1937, the year before Hitler started stamping them. And I saw that it was 1937. That's awesome. That's the last of the German K98s before they were turned into, into Nazi Mausers. And stamped with the angry bird that we called it. <laughs> <laughs> and then they rolled off the line. And then people would collect it. they would collect rifles like mine and they learned how to stamp the Nazi emblem on there in random places where they think they should go. It's really sad because people get charged for these, like they're Nazi rifles, but they're not. They're fake. Some dude stamped it in his garage in the 70s. Because he wanted it to be worth more so he could sell it. It's unfortunate that these things do occur, but you got to know and you got to do your homework. I say if you're going to be getting into this market, pick a gun you want, set a goal, say, all right, how much are they running? What quality am I, am I probably going to find? Am I willing to pay the price for it? You know, what years am I looking for? That's very important with your FFL and COE because you have to get it within 50 years of today's date. Well, it's got to be outside of 50 years of today's date, whatever that date may be. If you're listening to this podcast in the year 2032 and we're all driving electric cars because Gavin Newsom somehow won, I'm sorry. <laughs> I probably still own a manual transmission. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> put one in an electric car. I don't care. Anyway, <laughs> I'll, I'll make it work. I'll go to Rich Rebuilds and we'll build a manual transmission for an electric. Anyway, so you got to go in there with a the mindset of this is what I'm looking for, and then start your search. Walk into the gun stores, get to meet people. It's a great community, and most people are more than happy to share what they know and what they have. Unless you see some little prick at a gun range firing an AR, and he says, this is the big daddy in the gun show here. You can kind of avoid those people. They're the ones who don't know anything, and it obviously shows. The people you want to befriend are the old guys sitting in the corner sighting in their Henry 22. Why? Because they're probably going to use that gun to go rabbit hunt like they've done the past 50 years. Like their father taught them to do. Those are the cool gun owners you want to talk to. Not Johnny Ford Grip and Bipod Laser Owner. 
mine's special because it was number three. You know, I, I know this this is going to sound terrible, but do you know what I see out of the AR community? I can guess a lot, but what do you see? AR community is the gun version of Corvette owners. Okay. I, I know it might sound a little confusing, but have you ever seen the Corvette owner? He wears a polo shirt tucked into shorts with tube socks and new balances. <laughs> yeah. Am I hitting this on the head or what? They usually have a leather belt on their shorts and they will sit there and they will tell you exactly why their 1997 Corvette is special because it was one of 30 that came off the lot with these wheels and this paint job configuration. Nobody gives a shit. It doesn't make it special. You're trying to make it special because you invested a ton of money in something you're probably not happy with anymore. That is the Corvette community. Except for those who actually buy really cool Corvettes, like a Z06 or something, you know, and they, you know, they, they get these crazy packages, like someone who would get a Copo Camaro and yeah. an outstanding beast of performance, and they're going, check this out. You know what I mean? And then those are the guys, you, you know, you kind of, you got to be careful of those guys. You thought Mustang owners were bad. Those are the guys you got to watch out for. They say they will drive that car and it won't be in a straight line <laughs> because it can't physically go in a straight line. It's got too much power and it's awesome anyway. So I, I see the AR community are following these steps where these people are going, Oh yeah, I got an AR. It's got this, this. And they start pointing out to me shit they got from Walmart or they, you know, I got this off this website and this one off this. They don't make these anymore. And I'm going, Dude, you sound like you own a Corvette. <laughs> it's the only one that came in this color blue with these wheels. Who cares? <laughs> it's not special. It just... Uh... I mean, there are guns that, yes, you could purchase them. They can be special. My Henry. I ordered it because I thought they were going to discontinue it. They haven't. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have the Old West 3030 brass receiver, octagonal barrel, the small loop handle, the, the American walnut wood. It's fantastic. It's a gorgeous gun. I love the thing to death. I've shot it once because ammunition is hard to find for. But it's a gun that I bought for the beauty of it. And the fact that it's an Old West gun, brand new but built to the standards of the Old West when the barrel had to be heavy so you wouldn't have a huge recoil when you fire it. That weight would absorb that recoil so you could stay on target longer and reload faster to get your target. And I think it's really cool. It's a, it's a piece out of time. Just like most of my firearms are pieces out of time. You know, they all have their time period they came from and the reasons why they were made. And I think it's so interesting. And maybe that's what you're looking to do, but you got to go in knowing what you're looking for. I went in knowing exactly what Henry I wanted and I ordered it new. <laughs> that's, 
I, I was one of the few people who bought a Henry in the beginning of the pandemic simply because I wanted a pretty gun. <laughs> so before we move on to our next topic, um, I'm just going to say one thing about when it comes to the markings. Uh, there will be a later episode where we do discuss really what to look for when it comes to markings, especially in the terms of to make sure it's not a fake, like signs to look for. Um, but I will say if you're going to collect the one thing you will want to look up and have it saved in a tab on your phone even is the marking for a Arasaka rifle that notated that it was for training. So I own two Arasakas. And one of them was a big mystery because we didn't know what it was. And I had to do the research myself because I would go on to forum after forum and I would try to get answers and no one could give me a straight answer as to whether or not mine was a training rifle or not. Uh, and it came down to the point to where I had to take it to a gunsmith and go here. Can you, here's a box of ammo. Can you please put it on a vice and fire it for me? If it explodes, it explodes. I don't care. And the guy looked me dead in the eye and said, it's not going to explode, sir. This is not a training rifle. Because it had been in such bad shape, I could not tell it was even fired. Even the gun... <laughs> even the gunsmith looked at it and went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's a big reputation on that behind the Arasakas that they blow up in your face. Well, that's because Bubba decided to get a hold of one down there in Arkansas and he put a round in it and said, I'm going to shoot me this here Jap rifle. And he done fired it. And guess what? It done blew up in his face. Why? Because it wasn't a real rifle. It was a training rifle and it was sold to him as one. And he had no idea. And then the stories continue on. It's all word of mouth. You know, I, it is a terrible reputation they've gained. And I think a lot of us here in the U.S. don't look at both sides of the coin, as it were. We tend to just take what we hear as fact. And it's very unfortunate that we do. Because someone had informed me, hey, that's an Arasaga. That's going to blow up in your face. And I went, why? From what I've read, the Japanese rifles had the best steel of anyone in World War II. They were the first chromed barrels produced. So explain to me why it's going to blow up my face when it's better quality than your M1 Garand. And... They couldn't give me an answer because M1 Garand's the greatest thing ever because America. Well, you know, that doesn't really hold up as an argument. <laughs> Not to hate on the Garand, it's the only rifle missing out of my collection that I wish I could get. And unfortunately, every time I try to obtain one, they are no longer within my reach. Uh, I've heard they're amazing. I want one for my collection personally. I haven't been able to get one, despite 
being an FFL, being a part of the California Rifle Pistol Association. Uh, and if you're listening out there, I highly recommend you join them. I, I don't normally do uh, ads, considering we don't really have ad reads yet, because we're still an extremely small podcast that only five people listen to. However, uh, if you do get the opportunity, the California Rifle and Pistol Association, they are the ones who are fighting for your rights here in California. Give them a look into. If you're going to become a curio and relic collector, you're going to want to talk to these guys. You're going to want to join them. It is nothing but beneficial. I think you pay a $5 fee and you're, you're in there for five years as a member. And they do all sorts of beneficial things. They will email you with every firearm update that happens in the state of California. They will keep you informed and they will keep on it. They are constantly fighting for your rights. Whereas the NRA has openly stated California is a lost cause and they will not help us. California Rifle and Pistol Association has stepped up to the plate. Where the NRA failed us, they are prevailing. So if you get an opportunity, California Rifle Pistol Association.org. So let's move on to the next topic. What is the weirdest gun in your collection? So I'm going to be honest. I don't remember if I showed you this handgun before. But if you have, if I didn't show you this gun and you've heard of it, I will truly be shocked. So, Jake, have you ever heard of a Grendel P10 handgun? Grendel? A Grendel P10 handgun. A Grendel P10 handgun. Now, that's an interesting... That's an interesting call-out. So... One, I can make a joke. Two, I can tell the truth. <laughs> and three, I can just flat out lie to you and say, no, I haven't. The fact of the matter is, I have. And it's a very <laughs> weird thing that you bring this up. Because this was brought up with another friend of mine who told me this was a firearm that he wanted to collect. And the only reason I know, I only know the name Grendel. Okay, he didn't mention, you know, a P10. But he said a Grendel. Okay, it's just in general, like you would collect in a Mac 10. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, the Grendel, I, I only know this because one, uh, it sounds like Grundle, and that's what I put powder on every day before I leave. <laughs> <laughs> now Let's go with option three, where I go, you know, I have heard of it, but I have no clue what you're talking about. <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard the name, but I haven't the slightest clue as to what it is off the top of my head. Okay. Please, please <laughs> pray tell. So, have you heard of Caltech? 
Ah, I have heard of them. Yes. So the person who made Caltech, before he started Caltech, he had another gun company, which he made the Grendel series of handguns. There was a Grendel P10 in 380, a Grendel P12 in 380, and a Grendel P30 in 22 Magnum. So the Grendel P10, does, it has an internal magazine that you load from the top using M16 stripper clips. Which will it is able to hold the 380 rounds. Now, I, I'm going to be frank with you. I have never heard of that. <laughs> Nor do I want to. I am regretting hearing this. Because this sounds like something that's a nightmare for a new collector. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's some advanced firearm stuff right there, dude. To to not mix that up, or to I'm, I'm assuming if you don't have the stripper clip, you obviously are going to be loading it single rounds at a time. That's true. And that sounds rather painful to the thumb. It is. Yeah. Now, I mean, there's, there's you know, I I rarely use stripper clips. The only time I use them is when I have proper ones for the firearm. I don't even use them for my Mosins anymore. I just load them up one round at a time because they're you just push them in with your thumb real simple. You know, it's bolt action. It's, it's easy. It's dumb. There is only one gun I, I will use stripper clips on. And uh, that that is... Uh, that is quite the gun. So that's the weirdest one in your collection? Believe it or not, it was something I found on GunBroker. I had no clue what it was, and I figured, you know what? It's so weird. I looked them up. They were only made for like a year or two at the most. And I figured, you know what? That would be just some random thing that 20 years from now could just be like, oh, yeah, here, here's some, you know. Here's all these, you know, cool old guns. Oh, yeah, by the way, here's this weird thing that I can put in a case and be like, oh, this is so heavy. Pull out, it's just this little thing. Bought it more as a joke, honestly, but it was just so weird that I'm like, I kind of wanted to have it just because it was weird. I get that. I am often drawn to the odd and strange. I, I I get that. So what would you say the weirdest gun in your collection is? Well, <laughs> so I don't really have a weird gun. Um, I, for the most part, collected common stuff. 
there's only two that could possibly be considered weird. And one is completely from an outside stance. Someone who knows nothing about guns would consider this thing weird. But uh, it's the only AR that I own. Huh. <laughs> and it's an AR-7. For those of you who don't know, no, it doesn't shoot two two three. Um, it actually shoots twenty two. But I got this thing because it seemed like a perfect little companion to take camping. Or if I'm out going, you know, hiking up in, you know, local mountains and something is to occur and I get stuck and I got to hunt squirrels for dinner. I have the ability to. Uh, it's a fun little rifle. Little 22 caliber rifle that completely disassembles and stores into itself. The buttstock opens at the rear and you're able to slide the barrel, the receiver, and the magazines in there. And tuck it all away nice and neat. It is water resistant and floats. <laughs> if you drop it off a kayak or a river rafting, it'll float. Uh, it's actually really weird because it uh, it breaks down uh, the way that it does. It is a little awkward to shoot, uh, especially left-handed. Very difficult to shoot left-handed. Yes. Not, not my problem. I'm right-handed. Unlike some of us here in this podcast. Anyway. <laughs> uh, some people find it a little weird that it breaks down and stores within itself I guess that could be considered weird uh, the only other one which most people would would say weird is when I pull out probably my rarest gun now, I got very lucky not too long ago near the end of the pandemic and I came across a gun I'd been looking for for a very long time. A C96 Mauser. Mm -hmm. now, some of you might sit there and go, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm poor, and I'd like to change that. So for me to buy a gun of such magnitude and reputation, I mean, this thing wasn't even on, it wasn't even for sale yet. The The gun store owner realized that I'm a, I'm a man who collects curios and relics, and he knows I like history, and much like himself, because he opened the store that I purchased this in. He said, hey, I got something in the back you might be interested in. I said, oh, really? Yeah. I can't sell it to you yet, but I'll let you take a look at it. I haven't priced it yet. It's in rough shape, but I figure you might be interested. So he comes out with a C96. My jaw dropped, and I went, oh, dude, you're going to charge me an arm and a leg for this thing. I know this tactic. You're trying to sell me a new car. That's what this is. Trade in that old hoopty <laughs> and get yourself a Cadillac. No. I'm not falling for it. He goes, well, I haven't even priced it yet. And I go, well, fair enough. Let's take a look. Now, Sean knows, um, and I know, th this gun came from a personal collection. 
of a lunatic. The man is probably on death row. I don't know. I I haven't... (laughs) I could look it up. I really could. (laughs) I have everything I need to look this man up because it's all over the gun. So, back in the 1900s, okay, and I'm talking before the 70s, before the 60s, back when guns didn't have serial numbers, people would etch electric pencil, engrave their names onto the guns. This man found an electric pencil, found the C96 Mauser, and decided that it was a Crayola Color Wonder Book. He put his full name and social security number on it. (laughs) And he did this to every gun in his collection. Every flat surface he could fit it on, he electric penciled his name and social security number onto the firearms. Now, this was a way back in the day to prevent them from being stolen because, yeah, that's hard to get out. And it's pretty hard to say, hey, you stole my gun. And they go, no, I didn't. And he goes, really? Because it's got my social security number on it. I mean, you know, you're kind of going to lose that argument. (laughs) Yeah. So, unfortunately, this gun had been violated by this toddler with an electric pencil of a human being. And uh, his name is all over it. Now, this means that the gun's been devalued. It's not much of a collector anymore. And unfortunately, it's just been. Ah, what's the term that I can use that wouldn't fire people up? It's been touched inappropriately. <laughs> they went to this when the this gun store got this thing, they were so excited until they realized they had to show it a teddy bear and ask where the bad man touched you with an electric pencil. And it went everywhere. <laughs> so (laughs) it was obviously at a very big discount because of this so the guy tells me look I'll sell it to you for 500 out the door and naturally the first person I call is Sean and I go hey man in about two weeks this guy's got this C96 Mauser he wants to sell me for 500 and Sean just goes do it I didn't tell him the state of the firearm until after I'd gotten it and sent him pictures. But the the electric yeah. penciling isn't very deep. And I realized that with the right skill set, which I do have, I've done a lot of woodworking in my past, to where I think I can wet sand this handgun down to remove all the electric penciling on it. Because fortunately, he did not get the wood grips. And he only did it down one side of the barrel and then one of the side flat surfaces. The other side is left alone where it says Mauser. I got very lucky. So I might be able to pull this off 
by doing several months worth of wet sanding on this handgun and then drying and then wet sanding and then drying and wet sanding and drying. It's going to be a very long process to remove that to get it to where someone would actually want to collect this thing in, in time. And maybe in due time, it'll come back to its former glory and be worth a lot more. If I can remove the electric penciling, which again is pretty shallow on it, considering the thick steel that was used. But that's one of the, you know, weirdest firearms I have. Uh, now, this was a perfect example of knowing what you're looking for and doing your research. Knowing the prices, which I knew that that gun would go for about 800 to to 1000 normally. But in its uh, molested state, it would go for significantly less, which dropped it down to 500 which made it affordable for me, and I was able to do so. I had to save up a lot to do it, uh, but I, I, did, I did manage to pull it off in time. And I think that would be the, uh, the weirdest gun in my collection. Yeah. Now, here's, here's a question. Now, th this kind of brings up another topic here. I think it's a pretty good segue into it. Uh, what are some outstanding gun prices that made you seriously go, what the fuck are you smoking? <laughs> So, I guess it depends how you want to look at it. You want to talk about how a price so low you're questioning why is it this low, or prices where you're like, are you serious? You expect someone to pay this exorbitant amount for this not exorbitant or nice gun? Either or. Uh, and let me start. By saying $100 rifle, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> that's at the low end. My high end was a Mosin for $800. And it was not a Tula. It was not an Extragoon. It was a 1944. Which makes no sense whatsoever, but they were asking $800 for it because uh, apparently they think they knew what they had. That's my input. So, Sean, go ahead and uh, take this one. What gun prices made you seriously question reality? So, now I know you have this uh, type of firearm. You have a Type 38 Arasaka. I do. Do you mind disclosing what you paid for it? It was $400. And, unfortunately... <laughs> The gun cannot be fired. Um, now, some people would be like, well, you paid $400 for a gun that can't be fired? Yes. The steel is perfectly fine, and it will fire. The trigger mechanism works beautifully. It all functions. The, the bolt action works great. The problem is, the gun was picked up in the battlefield in Japan Possibly Iwo Jima, from what I've heard. Uh, if not Iwo Jima, then uh, 
I want to say Okinawa. I I know my Type 99 came from Oki. But this one had been hit. The, 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 the Japanese man who was issued this rifle. He was killed by a grenade blast at close proximity. And the blast had taken a chunk out of the stock of the rifle at the thinnest part where your thumb goes over the stock and you're supposed to grab, there's now a huge gaping hole. (laughs) (laughs) And if I were to fire it with the age of this firearm, it's going to break. So I've been on a search to find a replacement wood stock so that I can fire the gun. It's the only one in my collection I have not fired. And it really irritates me because naturally, you know, you get, you go into Reddit, you're asking around and these kids, Oh, you can't do that. It's historical. You know, they get a bug up their butt. Every time you say you're going to do something. Yes. I'm keeping the original stock. I'm not stupid. Yes. The steel will go back into the original stock after I test fire. I want to make sure the stupid thing fires. (laughs) That's all. Do (laughs) and everyone loses their damn minds that I'm changing a stock. I said, just give me a a carbon fiber one, a fiberglass one. I don't anything will work as long as I can just test the rest of the rifle without damaging the wood. My goal is to keep it in a collectible state (laughs) and not let it just destroy itself by test firing it. And that's so now yours yours does have the chrysanthemum, correct? Both of them, yes. Okay. So tell me. For a Type 38, nothing special, no chrysanthemum. Would you pay $900 for one? Well, that's where it gets a little tricky. Now you're saying it's nothing special. Well, some of them are. You see, it depends on when the gun was made. And how intact it is. With Japanese rifles, it's an entirely different market when it comes to the collectability. You see, some people collect these things and they think, I just have a Jap rifle and it's cool. Well, a lot of them are last ditch, is what you'll find. And last ditch are usually pieced together from the remains of other rifles. Um, To find one in really good issue state, especially early on in the war or possibly slightly before World War II, it's incredibly difficult. So saying you found an early version of an Arasaka Type 38 or 99 doesn't matter. They're both going to go for a very hefty price because that means that they probably somehow skirted the war and maintained their integrity, maintained all their components, and somehow just was put into storage. And that does make it extremely rare amongst the Arasakas. Whether someone's willing to pay that, that's a whole other story. To some people, yes, it is worth that because, dude, it's got everything. It is like finding someone who bought a brand new, you know, a a brand new Mustang. From 1964. And yes, 64. I know what I'm talking about here. 
and put it in a barn. And someone found it today. And it's immaculate. It was under covers. The, the leather seats are still pristine. There's not a single scratch on it. It's a time capsule. Those go for a lot of money, don't they? It would be the same situation. A barn find vehicle in amazing condition is going to be worth a lot more than one that's been passed around the auction block for 500 years and has been touched by everyone and everything and had stupid wheels put on it. And, you know, there's, there is, this is the collectability side. And this is where a collector has to step in and go, hey, is this worth it to me? Do I want this in my collection? And if so, am I willing to pay the price? Am I looking to get a return out of it? Or do I just want it to say that I have it and I'll be happy with that? That's entirely up to you. Now, to see one that's $900, that, that honestly doesn't surprise me if it's incredibly, you know, maintained, it's early war, it's almost unheard of to find these. It really is. Now, the other side of that coin is you're saying it's a very bland, generic, just a Type 38. It's probably one step above a last ditch. It's probably rusty barrel, probably pitted. You know, probably not looking so hot, showing its age. No, that's not worth $900. And whoever's trying to sell it for such is a criminal. And should probably commit ritualistic, uh, well... I'll stop there. <laughs> there's a there's a reason why they gave him short swords in the war, you know. Yeah. So, just a little lesson on the Arasakas. I had to learn all that myself because God knows there's anyone in California who has one that's willing to share that information. Now. Say it was another good example of that. Wasn't there at that Turner's in the desert that we used to go to back when it was a freedom store? Uh, there was a Mosin on the shelf, and they were asking 600 for that generic Mosin. And I looked the guy dead in the eye and said, what in the hell makes you think you're going to get 600 for it? <laughs> and it didn't sell for a very long time. <laughs> but once, uh, once Joe Biden said no more imports, it sold. <laughs> I, uh, I, I looked up on it and they said, yep. The day after Joe Biden said, we're stopping the importation of Russian guns and ammo. That thing sold real quick. And I went, yeah. That's kind of expected. <laughs> but, I mean, like I said, that Arasaka, yeah, that may seem like an exorbitant price, but if that's early war, those are incredibly rare. And the guy obviously knows what he has because he's asking way too much for any other rendition of it. It would have to be an early war. It would have to have everything that would normally come with them. 
uh, it's been a while since I've been versed on an Arasaka. I'm, I'm not sure if the Type 38s had dust covers. Um, I, I, I know they didn't have, I don't, they didn't have bipods. That was the Type 99s. Um, and, you know, depending on when it was made, how the sights were configured, and, you know, it could make it incredibly rare. But there's also the other side of this going, well, it could just be a total piece of crap. And the guy's going, well, I don't see them anymore, so they're worth a lot. That's what it's worth to me. And that's where you usually deal with a bunch of morons. So in the next episode, how to introduce your friends to shooting. And should you introduce your friends to shooting? We'll give you clues and hints and tips to see if they're ready to be introduced to the world that you've so readily walked into. So this has been the California Curio Collecting Patriots podcast. Once again, my name is Sean. My name is Jake. And thank you for listening. Please feel free to like and subscribe to the California Curio Collecting Patriots podcast on YouTube. Also, feel free to like the podcast on Facebook at the California Curio Collecting Patriots podcast information on new episode postings will be made. Likewise, feel free to bookmark www.CaliforniaCurioCollectingPatriots.com to get access to Podbean, where you can subscribe to receive updates as soon as they go live. This has been an Arceo Productions podcast.